Welcome back. It's nice to see familiar faces. I don't know any of your names. Just keep introducing yourselves to me and eventually I'll get them. And I hope I'm gonna see many of you in New York and by then maybe I'll learn the names for New York or at least when you leave. As Ari said, tonight is the first part of our four-part series, Take My Wife, Please, Marital Relationships in the Biblical Text. Each lecture stands, talk, learning, whatever you want to call it, stands on its own, right? So you can come to one and not worry about it. You can, you can tell your friends they can come to the last one and not worry about it. But at the same time, they build on each other. And that's sort of what I'm doing with the whole series. Many of the texts that we're going to be using throughout these 28 more days will be similar. Some of them will be the same. So by the end, you will have accrued a body of knowledge because sometimes it takes hearing it more than once to actually get it or more than once to get the questions you want to ask or the challenges you want to give to me. Right? Don't worry about that. It's all part of the process. Right? So tonight we're going to start with one of the stories of Abraham and Sarah. For the most part, this series, this four-part series, stays in Genesis. The last uh, week will go into the book of Numbers, but we're, all sta we're staying in the Chumash, in the Torah, for this. All right, so we're starting with a, a text that really begins the story of Abraham and Sarah. If you travel through the biblical text, you first get introduced to Abraham in the very beginning of chapter 10, right, when God says, hello, and Abraham says, okay, I'll follow you, right? And then God promises him the sun, the moon, the earth, the stars, and everything, and all the like. And then we get to, uh, as I trip, we get to the begats in chapter 11, and that's where we get introduced to Sarah, Abraham's wife. And the first thing we learn about Sarah is that she is what the Bible calls akara, which gets translated as barren. And I have a lot of issues with translating akara, oh, thank you, as barren. Because barren, the way we understand barren in English, means unable to have offspring, right? Basically, it means infertile. Barren land, you can't grow anything. Barren people, they can't grow anything. But akara, that gets translated as barren, is a marker for a woman who is destined to have a special son. Oh, come to school, you learn something. I, that's what I always say to my, my class. Every time, and as I said in this in the last, in our last uh, evening together, I'm a word person, I do philology. Every time the word akara is used, it's used of a woman who has not yet had a child. And the child that she is going to have is going to be the uber special one, not the uber taxi driver. The, right, the extra special one, the designated one. So though it is barren, she has not had children, it doesn't share that connotation that we have with 
barrenness. Now that's something we're going to delve into more next, what day of the week is this, Thursday? Next Thursday, wait till, wait till next week, I really won't know where I am. Right? That's, we're going to delve into it more in the story next Thursday, but it's something that we need to keep in the back of our minds when we look at this story, because the first thing we're told about Sarah in chapter 11 when we're introduced to her, really the only thing we're told about her, we're not giving a lineage or anything, is that she is Akara. She is barren. And if you're reading this, you say to yourself, ah, we know what's going to happen. She's going to have an extra special son. Okay, so now we move along. And I'm going to figure out how to do this. Okay. Snaps. Um... There was a, this is Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 to 20, JPS translation. There was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And he was, as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, this, there's still Abram and Sarai here. I still call them Abraham and Sarah, just because it's easier for me to say and for you to realize who we're talking about. Um, I know what a beautiful woman you are. If the Egyptians see you and think, ah, she is his wife, they will kill me and let you live. Please say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may remain alive thanks to you. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw how very beautiful the woman was. Pharaoh's courtiers saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's palace. And because of her, it went well with Abram. He acquired sheep, oxen, asses, male and female slaves, she-asses, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his household with mighty plagues on account of Sarai, the wife of Abram. Pharaoh sent, sent for Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her as my wife? Now, here is your wife. Take her and be gone. And Pharaoh put men in charge of him, and they sent him off with his wife and all that he possessed from Egypt. Abram went up to the Negev with his wife and all he possessed, da, 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 and now they all went together. They were very, very rich, and they kept going. Fine. So this is what we call the first wife-sister story. There are oh so many interesting things here, not the least of which is God promises Abraham that he's going to get this land. He's going to have all the stars, you know, the stars in the sky, sands of the sea, right? You're familiar with that part. And this is where you're going to be. There's a famine in the land. And what does the guy do? Does he have faith in God, this is the land? Or does he say, oh my goodness, I'm hungry, I'm leaving? Right? Immediately, right after God makes a promise to Abraham that all of this is going to be yours, it's going to be fantastic, there's a little blip. He packs and he runs. Right? Now, it's wonderful because when you think of Egypt, and when you think of Egypt liturgically, right, in the prayer book, when you think of Egypt and the Jews in Egypt, what's the first thing you think of? Avadim We were in corvée labor. Slaves is a bad translation, but we use it anyway. But we were in corvée labor. We were in bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt. We think of Egypt as this horrible, horrible place, this place of hard work and oppression and all of that. Right? The Bible has two main stereotypes of Egypt the stereotype of plenty and the stereotype of bondage, the stereotype of hardship. Egypt is the land of plenty. 
There is no question. And we're going to talk about that a lot in a number of different talks that we have. Many of these themes will repeat throughout our month together. Egypt is the land of plenty. With the exception of the Book of Ruth, every time the phrase, there was a famine in the land, occurs, it's followed by, and they went to Egypt. Except in the Book of Ruth, which has an entirely different agenda, which I talked about yesterday, and most of you weren't there. I don't think any of you were there. Okay. But we can do that again at some point. Right, so he goes, he goes to Egypt, the land of plenty. And what's one of the fun things about this story, at least to my mind, is that both stereotypes of Egypt get worked into one story. It's the land of plenty, but it's the land of danger. Right? He goes because there's food, but there's trouble. He's not going to be able to stay. It is a land of danger and problems. And then when he leaves, he was very rich. What happens when the Israelites leave Egypt? They, just, they are very rich. So there's all this patterning in this story. But at the same time, there's no real Egypt seen in this story. And that's one of the things we're going to talk about in some of the other stories that deal with Egypt. You frequently have a lot of Egyptian coloring. There is no Egyptian coloring in this story. This story is totally devoid of anything that smacks of Egypt, except for the word pharaoh, which basically means king of Egypt in Egyptian and in Biblical Hebrew. It's not a proper name. It just means king. Frequently, it'll be Paro Melech Mitzrayim, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, just as a gloss to translate the word, because Paroa is the Egyptian word for king. Right? So king said. Right? That's how that gets used. OK. We need to keep this in our heads. Now, next slide. Nope. Oh, yes. OK, so <laughs> this is, as you can see, Abimelech and Rebecca and Abraham, etc. Uh, this, the, the wife-sister tale, the, oh my god, tell them you are my sister, because otherwise they might take you, from, you know, and kill me, right, occurs three times in Genesis. We don't call this a, a twice-told tale. What I was talking about in Genesis in the creation account on uh, Tuesday, I was going to say Sunday, but I know it wasn't Sunday. On Tuesday night, I need like uh, flashcards to tell me you know, what day it is. On Tuesday, that's a twice told tale, a tale that is told two times. Right? This is what we call a thrice, I love saying that, a thrice told tale. It occurs in our text in Genesis 12, it occurs again in Genesis 20, and then again in Genesis 26. Same story, once with Pharaoh, twice with, in English we say um, Abimelech, but Avimelech is the way no, most of us understand this name, right? Twice with Abraham, once with Isaac. Right? So it is, a, it is a story that repeats, right? It's a theme that repeats in the text. Now, of course, it's me and I like doing maps. And so we're going to have a couple of maps, not because there's any difference in them. It's just because I think maps are really important to understand what's going on. 
And that sort of gives you an idea of where we are. I don't really believe it's Abraham's travels, Isaac's travels, Jacob's travels. It's just the way you, if you want a map of the Fertile Crescent at this period of time, most of them come from Bible sites. And so they'll, you know, I'm fortunate that I didn't, I found one that didn't say Jesus' travels, right? Because it, most of them wind up coming from those sorts of sources. But again, you can see in this map and in the next one that I have, really the Fertile Crescent. Right? And if there is, I have a pointer. I brought a pointer all the way from New York. I stole it from school just for this occasion. Right? If, if I did, I have to bring it back. Right? This is, the, the weather patterns here are one thing, and then the weather pattern here is something else. We talked about this on Tuesday night when we were talking about the Heroes Gamos and the Nile self-fertilizes. Here, you need rain. Here, you don't because the Nile fertilizes from the, uh, Lake Victoria, which is you know, down here somewhere. Click. Nope. Okay, right, and you can see it more specifically here. Now, one of my absolute favorite images is this. This is, you can't really figure out what it is, can you? These are Asiatics. This is from a pyramid causeway in Egypt, the Pyramid Causeway of Eunice. Uh, early 5th dynasty, about 2600 BCE, because Egypt is really the breadbasket of that part of the world. And these are Asiatics, and of course the people from our part of the land and the story, from what it would now be considered Israel, is Asia, right? It's the landmass Asia, just as Egypt is the landmass Africa, right? The Israelites aren't Asian as in the Far East, and the Egyptians aren't African as in Sub-Saharan African, but landmass Asia. These are Asiatics, and they have come into Egypt for food, and you can see how skinny they are because you can see their ribs. And this is a caravan of people that have come in because there is a famine in their land, and they come to Egypt. Right? This one is absolutely marvelous because it's so horrible. This is a woman and she's picking a lice or a bug or something from her head and eating it, which is worse than feeding frogs. Right? This, is, this is the level of there was a famine in the land. There was a famine in the land. Right? And they come to Egypt because Egypt has food. So Sarai gets taken into Pharaoh's palace. Right? There are no real pictures of that stuff. But she gets taken into Pharaoh's household. Now, what's the problem? You tell me. He, 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 takes, he takes Abraham's wife, yes, but Abraham said, this is my sister, right? So what, what are we afraid of? Well, we won't get the, the special son. Well, we might get the special son. <laughs> the the, uh -huh. So that's what we're afraid of, uh -huh, is what we're afraid of, right? Sarah is married, 
Well, I'm being recorded. I can't say what we're really afraid of. That was a joke. Okay, Sarah, Sarah is married to Abraham. Sarah being with Pharaoh is adultery. <laughs> um, if a man commits adultery with a married woman, committing adultery with another man's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. I should have made that in a different color and bigger, but I didn't. Because um, there's no page, you know, otherwise there would be a picture flying up there and there isn't going to be one. Right? We're afraid of adultery, and that would be, at this point in the story, truly, truly awful, because Sarah has been labeled Akara. And that means that her child is the designated heir, the designated child. So the lineage and the entire story is put into jeopardy because Sarah is, has now been taken away from Abraham. All right. On some level, big deal. On some level, big deal. Sarah's off within, in Pharaoh's palace. Right? Pharaoh and Sarah, very nice. There's another problem. The problem is Abraham. Right? Abraham is a huge, huge problem. He has told his wife to lie. He's told his wife to lie so that she might have to commit adultery. Adultery is a capital crime. It's when we get into the whole Talmud and, and Talmudic laws. It's one of the three things you can't do. Someone puts a gun to your head and says, shoot them. Right? There are three things you can, you can put, you know, eat, eat bacon or I'm going to kill you. Fine, I'll eat bacon. Right? But idolatry, adultery, and murder are the three things you do not do no matter what. And Abraham has put his wife in this position to save his sorry behind. Because he's afraid, and he says so. And we started by reading that text. He's afraid that she's so beautiful, they might kill me, right? Think about, and we're going to talk about one of, the, one of the talks that I have at some point in this, I don't know where it is in the month, it's the striking issue of beauty, right? So, you know, come to that and we'll talk a little bit about this as well. Somebody's beautiful, uh -huh, something bad's going to happen somewhere in that story, right? It's, which is just sort of, it's interesting in its own way. So Sarah has been taken, think about, um, what's his name and what's her name? I'm talking about him this, them this weekend. David and Bathsheba, right? He sees Bathsheba, uh-huh, right? He sets up the husband to get killed. That's what Abraham's, that's what, Abraham's, assuming there was a picture of Abraham here. I should have put Abraham Lincoln there. That's what <laughs> Abraham's, that's what Abraham's afraid of. He's afraid he's going to get killed. He's more concerned about himself. Hello, that's not nice. That's not nice. He's supposed to be gallant, 
right? He's supposed to say, no, no, kill me. Don't take my lovely wife. Right, girls? Isn't that what he's supposed to say? Fet on him. Okay, so now, what's interesting, and nobody, I, I don't even know if I gave you this as a, as a topic, but I will, I promise I'll put it into some of the talks. It's very, very interesting. Within the Bible, it's really, really cool. In the Bible, when men and women interact, not, not when you know, women interact with women and men interact with men, or God's in the picture, but when it's men and women interacting, that, at least in the Chumash, because I've gone through it all in the Chumash, I haven't gone through it in all of the Tanakh, the majority of times, not, a, not 100%, but the vast majority of the times, the men come out looking like idiots. <laughs> Not 100%, boys, you got something going for you, right? But it was like what we were talking about on Tuesday night in the Garden of Eden story, right? When Eve says, yeah, I was tricked by the serpent, I ate the, I ate the fruit, right? Ape, uh, not Eve, get them all confused. Adam says, the woman that you gave me, she made me eat, or she gave me to eat, right? He blames that way. And here again, Abraham isn't doing what he's supposed to do. He's setting his wife up. He's setting his wife up so that she will become an adulteress. And he's putting his lineage in jeopardy. The Kaddish Baruch, who God said, I'm going to make you everybody. And, and, and Abraham gets scared. In effect, it doesn't say he gets scared. But there's a famine, and he doesn't wait it out. He leaves the designated land, and then he says, okay, wife, go be. I'm going to be alive. Don't care about you. It doesn't look so good for him. Okay, now, the next slide is not Bible, and you're going to like not understand what's going on here. Okay, so... Just to give you, I'm going to orient you to the slide, then I'm going to tell you why we have it. This is a guy named Gudea. Uh, he's Sumerian, nothing, no relations to the Bible at all. But this is a complete Gudea statue. There are a kazillion, that's a technical, can you see? A, that's a complete Gudea statue. He's so cute. Um, there are um, many, 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 many Gudea statues. Many of them don't have their heads. And the one we're talking about today doesn't have its head, but I wanted you to see what he looked like because he's so distinct and it's just not nice to show you a picture of a guy without his head when I have pictures of his head. Um, there's one, his son, just as an aside, his son, Ornian Girsu, um, there's a beautiful statue, about this big, of Ornian Girsu that uh, also doesn't have a head. Uh, and the Met owns either the body or the head, I don't remember. And the Louvre owns either the body or the head, whichever one the Met, you know, the Louvre owns one piece and the Met owns the other piece. And for, for forever, the Met's displayed half, you know, its part, and the Louvre dis displayed its part. And then someone had the brilliant idea, let's share. And so now, you know, X number of years or months, whatever, it's probably years, Urnian Girsu in his totality lives in New York. And then he goes and he resides in Paris. And then he comes back to New York. So you're, it's always surprised when you go into the, the Assyrian gallery, is Urnian Girsu going to be there? So for those of us who are coming to New York and who are going to do the Met tour with me, if Urnian Girsu is there, we can meet him. 
that was a plug for the New York tour and for my tour of the Met in New York. Okay, so this one is, this is Goudet. He's called Goudet of the Architect because this is on his, that's what this is. That's a close-up of this. Okay, so why on earth am I showing you this? Right? Because it's very hard to illustrate a dream. Okay. <laughs> and I wanted to illustrate the concept of dream, and this is the only way I could come up with doing it. You still don't know why this illustrates dream. This is the, um, the blueprint. There's my English word. This is the blueprint of the temple. And just as God gave David the blueprint for the temple, and I'll probably, now that I'm thinking of it, I'm going to throw this slide into Sunday's talk later, right? Just as God gave David the blueprint of the temple, and Solomon built the temple off the blueprint that God gave David, right? Gudea's God gave him the blueprint as well, and that's the blueprint. You can see the crenellations. Right? Um, that's the blueprint that he was given. But how does a god give a blueprint? The god gives the blueprint through a dream. That's why this is illustrating a dream. Those of us who were, <laughs> it's hard to illustrate a dream. Those of us who were there on uh, Tuesday night might remember that we talked about one of the ways that you communicate between our world and the divine world. We talked about that with uh, Samuel and the um, the necromancer from Endor is through dreams. Right? Because dreams are divine messages. And it's marvelous, and I always say this, um, in the, the dream books of the ancients. The Egyptians have dream books, the uh, Mesopotamians have dream books, and it's like, you know, if you see a Coke bottle in a dream, it means, right? That's what the dream books are. And it's wonderful because one of the dream books has this great line that says that a dream has to reduplicate. You have to have the dream two nights in a row because if you only have it once, it might be something you ate. <laughs> right? So they have this sort of understanding. So now with the understanding that dreams are revelatory, that dreams are messages, we, this is not a clicker, we move on. Okay, so this is the actual ad from the Wall Street Journal uh, that uh, led to the sale of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know, if you take me out for drinks, I'll tell you the story because I have a friend, I'm a friend of my family friend, was the lawyer who bought the scrolls for Israel. So there's all sorts of stuff. Um, and this, of course, is a Dead Sea Scroll jar, and this is Qumran. And that's just to give you a little bit of flavor. And the scroll we're going to be talking about is the so-called Genesis Apocryphon. It has been called any number of texts. When it was first discovered, it was called the Lemel Scroll. Then it was called the Genesis Apocryphon. It has all sorts of names. It is um, a first-person recounting of stories in Genesis. So it talks that the people are talking rather than a omniscient narrator saying, and, Ab and Abraham did this or that. Right? It's I, Abram, did X, Y, and Z. Right? I, Noah, I, Lemech. The, the, it starts with the story of Lemech. 
right? So it's, and it goes through. It was in terrible, this is actually it. It was in terrible, terrible condition. And it took a long time before they could obviously painstakingly pull it apart, pull being not the right word, um, tease it, tease it apart, pull being a bad thing, so that they could read it. And as time goes on, they have read more and more of it with the more uh, advanced infrared uh, technologies that they have. Okay, so now we're going to read Genesis Apocryphon, columns 19 and 20. Now there was a famine in the land, um, and hearing there was prosperity in Egypt. Is okay as long as it's nothing I'm doing wrong. <laughs> now there was a famine in the land, and hearing not the beep, but hearing that there was prosperity in Egypt, I went to the land of Egypt and came to the river Carmon and, and crossed seven branches of blah 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 blah, and we went into the land of Egypt. On the night of our entry into Egypt, I, Abram, dreamt a dream. And, I behold, and behold, I saw in my dream a cedar tree and a palm tree. Men came and they sought to cut down the cedar tree, to pull out its root, leaving the palm tree standing alone. But the palm tree cried out, saying, Do not cut down this cedar tree, for cursed be he who shall fell it. And the cedar tree was spared because of the palm tree and was not felled. Now, what comes next is what I call the fiddler on the roof part. And during the night, I awoke from my dream, and I said to my wife, Sarai, my wife, I have dreamt a dream, and I'm fearful because of the dream. And she said to me, tell me your dream that I may know it. And this is exactly the from Sarah part in Fiddler, right? <laughs> but this is older. This, this antedates it. Um, so I began to tell her the dream and told her the interpretation of the dream, that they will seek to kill me but will spare you. Say to them of me, he is my brother, and because of you I shall live, and because of you my life shall be saved. How cool is that? How cool is that? Right? What's happening here? And we'll, we'll, read, through the, we'll read through more of it, because I've, I've got the rest of it on the next, uh, the next slide. Right? But it's so amazingly cool, because what does this do? It vindicates Abraham. He's not saying, oh my God, I'm scared. He's not saying, oh, Sarai, sorry, dear, you might have to become an adulteress. He's not saying that at all. God told him to do this, right? He dreamt a dream. And this is the interpretation of the dream. And dreams come from God. Just think about the Joseph story. I'm going to talk about that a lot while we're here together. Right? Just think of the Joseph story. Dreams come from God's dream. Dreams tell you what God wants you to know. Dreams tell you what God wants you to do. God says, Abraham, tell your wife to say, you know, we're not, we're not married, so then nothing bad's going to happen to you. It totally vindicates Abraham, which shows you that my saying, Abraham is a such and such, I'm being recorded, so I can't tell you what he really is, but you can figure out what I'm saying, right? That Abraham is a son of a gun for making, I knew I could clean that up, for making, for making, but for putting Sarai in this position isn't a modern read on the text. 
It was the ancient read on the text. They understood this the same way. They understood that he was being a lousy husband. They understood that what he was doing wasn't good, wasn't nice, wasn't upstanding, wasn't Abraham-like, whatever you want to say. And they have to clean him up. They have to kosher him up. He wasn't doing it right. They kosher it up. They kosher it up staying within the context of the story. This is probably the oldest midrash on Genesis. Right? We call this rewritten scriptures because it's the Bible stories being told with amplification. This is no different than what we would have when we were talking about Midrash now. But this is a Dead Sea Scroll. This comes from, I'm falling off here, sorry. I'm okay? This comes from before the destruction of the second temple. Right? The second temple is still standing when this text is destroyed, let alone when it's written. This is at minimally a 2,000-year-old understanding. It's closer to a 2,100-year, 2,200-year-old understanding. Right? That's amazing. They had the same issues and the same problems that we have. Okay, so that night Sarah wept on account of my words. I journeyed towards zone. Th that second map had zone located in the delta. Um, I and Sarai. And when those five years had passed, hey, our text doesn't talk about five years. Right? Our text doesn't talk about five years. And let me tell you something. In five years, we've got a real threat to the lineage of Abraham. Right? Sarah being in Pharaoh's court for five years, we've got a real threat to this Akara lady. When those five years had passed, three men from among the princes of Egypt came to the, at, at the command of the Pharaoh of Zon to inquire after my business and after my wife, and they gave goodness and wisdom and truth. And I exclaimed before them because of the famine, they came to ascertain with much food, drink, and wine. Yeah, lots of good stuff in Egypt. During the party, Egyptians must have seen Sarai, and on the return, they praised her to the king, and she goes, right? Um, next slide. When the king heard the, the words of Harkonosh and his two companions, and they all spoke with one voice, he desired her. I'm skipping lines because I'm going very long here. He desired her greatly and sent at once to take her, okay? Next paragraph, right? Uh, and I, Abram, wept aloud that night, and my nephew Lot, because Sarai had been taken from me by force. I prayed that night and begged and implored, and I, and I said in my sorrow while my tears ran down, Blessed are you, O most high God, Lord of all the worlds, you who are Lord and King of all things, and who rules over the kings of the earth, blah, 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 blah. I cry now before you, my Lord, against the Pharaoh of Tzon, the king of Egypt, because my wife who has been taken from me by force. Judge him for me that I may see your might and raise... Uh, mighty hand raised against him and against all his household, that he may not be able to defile my wife this night, and that he may not kn that he may know you, my lord, that you are the lord of all things of the earth. And I wept and was sorrowful. Right. So what's Abraham saying? Yeah, fine. He took my wife, but now God, if in fact you are powerful, don't let him near her. Okay. And if you don't let him near her then he's going to know that you're a great God, right? 
And that's always sort of the ploy in the text. And you think of if you go to shul, you know, this Shabbos, and you look at the Torah reading last week, this week, it's the, the plagues are done so that they may know that God is strong, so that they may know. And it's the same thing here. Don't let him touch her so that they may know how great and glory, uh, gloryful. And all I can think of is the Wizard of Oz in my, my head at the moment. Okay, so we move on. During that night, the Most High God sent a spirit to scourge him, an evil spirit to all his household. And it scourged at him and all his household. And he was unable to approach her. And although he was with her for two years, he knew her not. Yeah, thank God, right? Right. I don't think Pharaoh was very happy with all of this scourge. At the end of those two years, that's a long dry spell, the scourges of afflictions grew greater and more grievous upon him and all his household. Right? So nobody was getting nothing at all in Egypt while Sarah, while Sarah was in Pharaoh's harem. It's not a good thing. So we sent for all the sages of Egypt, for all the magicians, together with all the healers of Egypt, that they might heal him and all his household of this scourge. But not one healer or magician or sage could, um, could stay to cure him, for the spirits scourged them all and they fled. Okay, so this is a very bad, contagious disease that probably could not e even been cured by Viagra if they had it at the time, right? But that's what they're saying, obviously, here. The, if any of you were going to come to the David and Solomon talks this weekend, I've got one on Saturday and one on Sunday, just remember this part because it talks about the magicians, the healers, the wisdom of Egypt. We're not going to look at this text, but this text plays in to that concept as well because everything interconnects in the Bible. Um, then Harkinosh came to me, beseeching me to go to the king to pray for him and to lay my hands on him that he might live. For the king had dreamt a dream. But Lot said to him, Abraham, my, my uncle cannot pray for the king while Sarai, his wife, is with him. Go, therefore, and tell the king to restore his wife to her husband. Then he will pray for him, and he shall live. When Harkonosh heard, heard the words of Lot, he went to the king and said, All these scourges and afflictions with my with which my lord the king is scourged and afflicted, are because of Sarai, the wife of Abram. Let Sarai be restored to Abram, her husband, and this scourge and the spirit of festering, I like that, the spirit of festering, shall vanish from you. All right, we're getting close here. We're almost done. And he, and he called to me and said, what have you done to me with regard to Sarai? Again, it, that's a line right out of the Bible, right? What have you done to me? And that's a, it's a phrase that gets used in the biblical and the extra-biblical Hebrew texts that is a really, really large uh, statement of blame. What is this you have done to me? It's huge. Because really, did Pharaoh do anything wrong? No. Pharaoh did absolutely nothing wrong. He saw a hot chick. He said, is she attached or unattached? He was told she's unattached. And he said, hot damn. Okay? That's, and that's what he says in this text, and that's what he says in the Bible. It's not usual for us to see a text where Pharaoh is right and Abraham is wrong. You know, Pharaoh's not right, Moses wrong. We don't have that Pharaoh right, uh, what the brother's name, Aaron wrong. We don't have that. Pharaoh right, Abraham wrong. 
we have that. This was bothersome. Abraham really messed it up. He really, really did something he shouldn't have done in this large context. And it happens again and again in the story. Right? So Pharaoh you know, is prayed for by Abraham. It is every, you know, she is returned to him. The scourge departs from Pharaoh, and Abraham leaves with much silver and gold. Right? He gets rich when he's in Egypt. So, and this is the end. So, what do we have? I like the way things fly. Sarah is safe. She's not an adulteress. The lineage is safe. There will be no question as to who, as to who Isaac's father, as to who, okay, I, I wrote that in, in a language that wasn't English. It's sort of, it's, it's close to English. Okay? More on that next week. That's to bring you back. Okay? And Abraham is not pimping out his wife to hate, to save his own skin. What? He's not, he's not, but why is he not pimping her out? Because when we, when we get to the Dead Sea texts, God says to do it. So he's not pimping her out. God is saying, do it. And then what God is also saying is, don't worry, boy chick, I've got your back. Right? Because God has said to do it, we also have to have the faith that God will keep Sarai safe, she's not an adulteress, and keep the lineage safe. Because really more important than anything else is the lineage. And that's something that we're going to see as we move along. We're going to see that a lot. I'm almost done. Right? The lineage, right? knowing the father, and that we're going to talk about a lot in our fourth, in our last, like, yeah, our fourth lecture together. Knowing who the father is is amazingly important because that has to do. And I keep, I will keep saying it, and I'll explain it out in three more weeks. Right? It has to do with keeping the dead happy. Okay. So, the Bible doesn't answer all the questions that the Dead Sea Texts does. Because the people who wrote the Dead Sea Texts had the questions. They saw the problems. They needed the answers. They needed to kosher it up. One of the cool things, many cool things about the Bible, but amongst the cool things about the Bible is that there really aren't surprises. Right? You know going in, Sarah is Akara. And whatever threat there's going to be to that has to be taken care of. Why? Because God made a promise to Abraham. God's going to keep that promise. So whatever stumbling blocks, and I'm using that as a joke, that goes before Sarai or goes before the trouble with the lineage is for the story. Because the story needs to be a good enough story to keep you with the story, to keep you, under, to keep you involved in the story, to keep you involved and, um, in, well, I was going to say involved and engaged, but uh, invested, there's my word, involved and invested in the story. 
But you have the faith in that story, and you have the faith in the Kaddish Baruch Hu, and you have the faith in the fact that Sarah as Akara is going to ultimately have the son that God promised to Abraham. And then as we get to next week, we're going to see the next threat to that lineage. And that's my way of enticing you all to come back because I'm not going to tell you what that thread is for another week. Thank you. Okay. Questions, not statements. Questions, and again, I say this, I say this all the time, I entertain questions as long as they're relevant, and I'm the arbitress of relevance. Back corner. about the text because the text tells you what the text wants you to know. The text gives you its information and we can't necessarily find motivation in a text that purposefully doesn't give you motivation. Why would they include that sentence? I mean, it just, just why would they she, okay, she weeps and he weeps. We're not, we're given reasons why, you know, we're given a reason why one weeps, we're not given a reason why the other weeps. It's descriptive. Like, that's what the texts tend to be. They tend to tell you what's happening. They don't, they frequently don't, they most frequently don't tell you why. So you know, one of the best examples, so it's not a biblical text, but it's a Mesopotamian text, the Ishtar's descent into the netherworld. And it's this long involved and a lot of fun text about Ishtar, the goddess of love and war and passion and all sorts of things, goes into the underworld. And it's kind of horrible down there. And kind of horrible things happen. And then she gets locked up down there. And then they have to come and rescue her because when the goddess of love and fertility is in the underworld, nothing's happening up on Earth. Right? <laughs> and it's great. It says the man does not lay down with uh, his wife in the street. And I want to know, you know, are they laying down in the street normally, right? It's just really weird. And in the chamber, the, the, maid, the maiden's on her side, and the man's, you know, not. It's, it's marvelously uh, descriptive of what's not happening. So they have to go down and get her back up. But nowhere do we have the motivation of why Ishtar decided one day, hello, I'm going to the underworld. We don't get the motivations in the ancient text to a great extent. And it's when, you know, it's, I, I remember if I said it yesterday or I said it on Tuesday night, it's like the question about, you know, what did Sarah feel when Abraham took Isaac to be sacrificed? Not a question that's important to the text. Not a question that would occur to the text. Right? It's, we don't, you know, it, these are not questions that occur to the text any more so than, you know, questions occur to us in literature until it gets, you know, pointed at. No, not at all. 
Not at all. That's, that's a statement of how we want to we want to make the text work for us in a particular way, which is great, and that's what modern midrash is about, and that's what homiletics is about, right? Rather than what the text is about. Are there texts that are contemporaneous, like um, roughly, you know? The, in the Ugaritic texts or the Sumerian or, you know, Akkadian, any of those areas, or even in Egyptian, that have some comparable story of an important personage whose wife has to pretend that she's his sister? Well, you, you don't have those exact, but you have, you have similar things. You have similar... Um, Motifs of you know the hidden spouse sort of thing. Yes, these are not most. Of, this upsets us greatly. It really does upset us greatly. You know, and if I were to sit, if I were to you know do an off the cuff uh, discussion of you know the, the flood story and, the, and the, the flood in Gilgamesh, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, right? It gets it gets people very very upset. Right, because it's the same story, and there's no question that our story comes after their story, and our stories are taken from their stories, and this is upsetifying, as I like to say. Very, very <laughs> upsetifying. Okay. That's, again, a modernist approach. It's a problem for us because we like innovation. Does anybody remember um, That's Entertainment? The movie That's Entertainment? Great movie. Okay, if you haven't seen it, I don't know if it's on Netflix, but some that's Entertainment 2 stinks. That's Entertainment 1 is great. And there's a clip in there, a long clip, of Judy Garland and him. Mickey. <laughs> Judy Garland and right, okay, and Mickey Rooney. And what and I'm gonna get it wrong, but you're gonna get the idea. You know, and she, and she says, I have an idea. Let's do a show. And he says, Oh, we can use my father's garage. I have an idea. Let's do a show. Oh, we can use my father's stable. I have an idea. Let's do a show. Oh, we can use my mother's dress shop. Right? I mean, that's not actually, I mean, it, it almost is actually what it says, right? We, and, and, it's, and it's the pattern, you know? We still have patterns. We have police procedurals. You know, I really like the police procedurals, whether it's a, you know, a cozy mystery or if it's NCIS. Everything ends nicely. They always solve the crime. The bad guy goes to jail. I can feel good before I go to sleep. It's wonderful, right? But we like innovation. They didn't like innovation. They didn't like innovation. A story gets used again and again and again. A motif gets used again and again and again. Coming up with something new isn't a positive. Right? Coming up with something new doesn't necessarily work for them. What do you do? You take a story that everybody knows, a story with, with that most people are familiar with in some way, and you adopt it, and you adapt it. So you take it and you make it yours. You tweak and change what needs to be changed to make your point, whether it's a positive or a negative, but that's how you roll with it. I have to let Brenda ask the question. Is that why they keep going back to Egypt? 
Egypt's huge in the Bible. Egypt, we are a, we are a people born out of Egypt. There is no question that Egypt is the womb of the nation. Why that is, up for grabs. But there's no question that Egypt is the womb of the nation. This person has wanted to speak for a long time. Thank you. So uh, I was wondering if we have any historical evidence of when. Any what? Historical evidence <laughs> of where, no, not for this, uh, of when, of when uh, marital relationship or. Yeah. Um, understood the way we understand it. Oh, that's, good. that's a very good question. What's the question? I'll repeat it, let me finish. Because actually, I could offer an alternate interpretation. She was in a Quran, maybe it's not even considered they're really even married. I, she goes over there, nothing bad happens. It's only when later on the angels come and tell Abraham that she's gonna conceive and have kids, that God is actually blessing that particular union, and only then she gets to be his wife. Right, because what marriage now is a different concept than marriage was then. Okay? And we're going to see this in some of our other talks when we talk about leveret marriage. You have all sorts of different concepts. I think that's no, not next week. Next week is, is still, it's in two weeks when we're going to talk about leveret marriage. Marriage is a covenantal and legal relationship that deals with having offspring. It deals with protection of the family. It deals with protection of the woman. It deals with the legal status of the, the unit. Right? And we're going to talk about it again. With it. I think there's another talk about being a, you know, a whore um, and, that, and how that legal status is different. Our understanding of marriage as a, you know, um, a bond of love happens occasionally in the Bible, but when a couple is together, right, that is in effect their type of marriage. There's a marvelous dissertation written on, on the different, the variety of forms of marriage. And there's no question that Abraham and Sarah were married from the time of the begets because it says that she's his wife, right? That's the terminology that it uses. Uh, now, there's, there's some uh, speculation and there's midrash on whether Yitzchak was a, a, a quote, funny looking kid. Uh, it's not in the Bible at all. Um, well, you can, you can kind of infer it from the fact that Rebecca falls off her camel uh, and when she sees him. Because <clears throat> he was so damn gorgeous. Knee weeping gorgeous. That's what Eros does. He buckles your knees. The first description of Eros in Greek literature is that he is the knee buckler because when he strikes you, you fall down. Next. Keep going. Well, I mean, that's, that's one interpretation. The other interpretation was, who is this guy? <laughs> and, and, uh, but, but uh, is there any, you think any relationship between, between this, this part and, uh, and that? I mean, Yitzhak was conceived when his father was 100 and his mother was 80, mm -hmm. which is a little beyond the pale. Uh, and uh, yes, divine intervention probably happened, but um, do we, do we uh, uh, <clears throat> does, it, does it rule out that, that uh, Yitzhak was uh, something of a funny looking kid? I couldn't say that the text could really support that he looked one way or another. 
just is. We know that she's beautiful. That we know. We know Joseph's beautiful. We know Bathsheba's beautiful. Look at all the chocolate you know she's very gorgeous. eager to go with him. We know she's very eager to go with him. One more question. Why would they let him leave Egypt with all this wealth? Isn't it marvelous? <laughs> Isn't it marvelous? Egypt is a place of wealth. Egypt is where you go. Yeah, exactly. Egypt, you go to Egypt, Odysseus goes to Egypt when he needs money, and he leaves Egypt wealthy. You go to, it's like, what goes, what, what was it, what, what happens if you go to Vegas, happens if it stays in Vegas, whatever that is, you go to Vegas poor, you leave Vegas rich, wouldn't that be nice? That's just one of the stereotypes of Egypt. Don't, don't think that this is a, that this is an annal where it's actually what happened, it's actually what, what goes on in a narrative. Right? The streets are paved. The streets are paved with gold. He gets there and he gets rich and he leaves. And what happens when the Israelites leave? They leave rich. There's all this patterning and foreshadowing in the text. I was told that was the last question, and I heard a drum roll, so I bid you a good night.